0: Welcome to the Every Nation Rosebank Church podcast. At our church, we honor God, make disciples, and transform nations. For more information about our church, visit everynationrosebank.org and don't forget to subscribe. So good to see you all. Welcome, welcome, welcome. So we're carrying on with our Isaiah Uncapped series, and uh, we're in week five, and up to now, it has been fire. It has been so, so good. And um, we're dealing with a particularly interesting moment in the book of Isaiah because it's actually a narrative moment. It's actually a story, a bit of history, that is written into this book of the prophet Isaiah. And uh, what's particularly interesting about it is, is that the exact same story is told in the book of two kings. And so what's really brilliant about it is if you read the narrative From the book of Isaiah in 2 Kings, it's verbatim. It's literally the same words. And then in 2 Kings, which is a history book, it also records some of the prophecies that Isaiah made concerning the story. And it's so beautiful because if you read the prophecies that are recorded in the book of Kings, they're verbatim in Isaiah. So the book of Kings gives us a lot more narrative to the story, and the book of Isaiah lists in detail the prophecies that were made around this event. But before we get to that great story, I want to ask you a question. Is anybody in this room ex- experienced with a mess in life? A life mess. Can we see by a show of hands if you've ever had a messy moment in your life? I think we're in good company tonight. So the reality of life is that life is messy. If you haven't figured that out yet, where have you been and what are you doing? Now the reality of the messes of life is that there's a couple of places they could originate. The first one is us. I've made a mess in my own life (laughs) through choices I've made, through decisions I've made, through experiences that have happened. I have made a mess in my own life. Secondly, you've had somebody else dump their mess on you. Has anybody ever experienced that nonsense? <laughs> and thirdly, just life itself, the circumstances, the situations of life. Um, last year, in the end of March, who knows that life dumped a big old mess on us? <laughs> and we've made it through. And so, the problem with the messiness of life is that so often, as we encounter messes in our life, um, we begin to realize that we really on, we don't have everything that it takes to clean up our own mess. Has anybody experienced that? You're facing this mess, you're doing the best you can, you're trying to figure it out, but you realize you can't fix it. You can't clean it up by yourself. And of course, the, the issue that then comes is because we are human beings, we want to control everything, don't we? So I was saying this morning that even the most laid-back person, you show me the most laid-back, easy-going person, I will show you that that person has some control issues. (laughs) It's just part of being human. We want to be in control. And so when it comes to asking for help in our messes, there is a big thing that keeps us back, and that issue is around trust who am I going to trust? What am I going to trust? If I am going to invite someone or something from outside into this mess that I'm experiencing, who am I going to trust? Because I think we all have experiences when we have misplaced our trust, the mess just gets worse. And often the problem is, is that we start trusting ourselves. like, no, we're not going to ask for help because I can do it. I can do it. I can fix this. I can fix this. And so often, only by the time we've literally just got got our nose above the mess (laughs) do we actually start asking for help. So the story we're going to look at is a big mess that came to Jerusalem one day (laughs) and to the people of Jerusalem. So you can read with me from Isaiah chapter 36. We're going to read from verse 1. It will be up on the screen. It says this, In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. And the king of Assyria sent the Rabshakeh from Lashish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem with a great army, and he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And there came out to him Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the house- household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder. So this is the army of Assyria is besieging Jerusalem. So why are they besieging Jerusalem? Well, previously, King Sennacherib's father, the king of Assyria, had um, created a kingdom for himself by uh, all kinds of military campaigns, and he defeated these tiny little kingdoms all around the kingdom of Israel. Now, at this time in in Israel's history, they were in a bit of a bad way, and the kingdom of Israel had split into two kingdoms, uh, the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah. The kingdom of Israel had 10 tribes, and the kingdom of Judah had two tribes. And at this time, King Hezekiah was the king of the kingdom of Judah, and he held Jerusalem, which was the capital city, which was to the, 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 the place of worship. It was where the temple was built. It was the city of David, the city of God. And um, so they, then Assyria had ruled over these nations, but they were quite hard on the nations. They demanded high tributes. They were quite vicious. They took a lot of slaves. They were not good masters. Um, And so Sennacherib ascends to the throne. He follows his father as the king of Assyria. And about two years into his reign, these little nations all around Israel um, begin to rebel. Now, the word I forgot to tell you is that the kingdom of Israel had actually been taken into exile by by Sennacherib's father. It had completely fallen to the Assyrians. Um, But for some reason, Judah, Judah hadn't. He hadn't got quite as far as Judah. So Sennacherib decides he's going to subdue the, this rebellion. He's going to show them his might. He puts together a mighty army, and he goes to war with all these nations, and he literally defeats all of them, and he did something quite special when he defeated a nation. As soon as he had defeated that nation, he, took, he found their temples. He found their idols. He took them outside in front of everybody, and he smashed them to pieces. He burnt them to nothing, and he was declaring that the gods of Assyria are the best or the greatest, and you are now nothing. you belong to Syria. So obviously, as he's, he's, he's doing so well, he looks over and he sees little old Judah. And he's like, well, why? We've never had Judah. Let's go over there and see if we can take it. And as the Bible says, he, he attacks the fortified cities and he begins to defeat them. And it's not long and he's standing in front of Jerusalem. But there's something interesting that Jerusalem does. King Hezekiah has obviously seen him defeat all these other cities, but he doesn't just welcome him in. He doesn't just say, okay, just come, we'll surrender. They actually resist. When he arrives at Jerusalem, he discovers that they are prepared and ready for siege. And so this is where we're picking up the story. Now, I kept practicing this word, the Rabshakeh, the Rabshakeh, but when I say it, it keeps turning into Shakira and all kinds of other things, because it's just a really weird word. But that word um, is literally an honorific title for the king's cupbearer. And that is the, literally the most intimate person to the king. Um, for all the kings of Mesopotamia and Babylon, they, they had a rabshaker, and he would taste the wine in case the king was being poisoned. But it was a deep place of trust. And so this Rabshakeh is obviously speaking on behalf of the king of Assyria, who is in the area, but he's just sent the servant to come and speak. So he carries on speaking in Isaiah 36 verse 4, and he says, and the Rabshakeh said to them, say to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, on what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled? against me. And so the, he's taking this resistance of Hezekiah as a sign of rebellion. He's never owned Judah, but he is saying, how dare you rebel against me? And what the Rabshakeh is, Rabshake is actually implying is you've, got, you've made some alliance, but all I'm here to tell you is that no matter who you've aligned with, you have no reason to believe you're going to win because we are mighty and we are strong. A little bit down the line, he actually accuses Hezekiah of making an alliance with Egypt. If you listened to Chantal's message last week, remember what she told us. Don't go down to Egypt. Do you remember that that message that she spoke to us? Um, And the Assyrians are saying to Hezekiah, even if you have aligned with the Egyptians, he actually says this. He says, Egypt is a shattered reed, a shattered staff. And if anybody leans on her with their right hand, they're going to just hurt themselves really badly and make themselves even weaker. And so the king, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, is absolutely outraged that Jerusalem is even trying to show strength. But this question that they ask of Hezekiah, in whom have you put your trust, becomes really, really pertinent in this whole story. So let's let's look for a moment and see who King Hezekiah is actually is. Um, reading from 2 Kings chapter 18, verse eight. it says, He removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the asherah, and he broke in pieces the bronze servant, serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. It was called Nahushtan. Now, Israel's history is the cyclical reality of them being close to God, honoring God, worshiping God, making God first, obeying God's commandments, reading His law, and then shortly after that, falling into idolatry. It just kept happening. I was saying this morning that the reason Israel went into exile was because, if you read Jeremiah, um, was the punishment against Israel because they repented a whole lot less than Judah did. Judah was only marginally better than Israel at this point, but Israel just kept falling into that pattern of idolatry the whole time. And so King Hezekiah's father was absolutely awful at this and had not only allowed people to build whatever altars they wanted, wherever they wanted, however they wanted, but he himself had actually placed idols in the temple itself, which was an absolute abomination to God. Um, but, I, but Hezekiah had these great mentors. His mother was one of them, but some of the priests that were still allowed to live mentored him, and so he grew up in the fear of God. And so as soon as he ascended the throne, the very first thing he did was destroy the idols of Israel. He cleansed the temple completely, rededicated it, re-sanctified it to God, um, and he restored the reading and, and, and teaching of God's Word and, and really ushered in revival. Um, so that was quite brave of him to do that because were, the priests and, and the followers of each of those idols were quite powerful. So politically and religiously, he really brought a cleansing to Israel. It continues in verse 5. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who, who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him. Wherever he went out, he prospered. So he was a faithful man. He served God. Um, he put God first in his life. He put God first in the kingdom. And he put God first in, in, in the way he ruled. He found favor in God's sight, and he was blessed by God. Hezekiah's name literally means Yahweh is my strength, or Yahweh strengthens. It's quite a prophetic name because God strengthened him to to bring revival to his nation. And obviously, if you think about Hezekiah's um, history and what he he accomplished, he was a man who was acquainted with with fixing messes, with cleaning up messes. He wasn't scared. He'd he'd done it before, um, and he knew that he could do it again. But this is why that question that Sennacherib asks him through the Rabshakeh is so pertinent and important, because Hezekiah wasn't a perfect man. Just like you and I as believers, Hezekiah also faltered in his faith from time to time. And when you read in the book of Kings, you realize that even in the story, there's a moment where Hezekiah falters in his faith. Um, 2 Kings 18 tells us that just before the events we see here in Isaiah, Hezekiah attempted to pay Sennacherib a ransom or a bribe. So he could see what was happening around Judah, and he sent an emissary to Sennacherib and said, okay, let's just cut to the chase. It's money you want. How much do you want? What do you want? Let's just put this to bed right now. And so Sennacherib said to him, I want 300 uh, talents of silver, and I want 30 talents of gold. And so Hezekiah looked at the resources of Jerusalem, and he put that amount together. He got the exact amount, and he sent it to Sennacherib. But in order to put that amount together, um, he had to do something quite drastic, And what he had to do was strip the temple of God of all its precious metal. Now, if you remember anything about the temple of Solomon, it was glorious. It was one of the biggest buildings of its time. It was an absolute uh, show-off to the nations. King David had put together incredible amounts of treasure and wood and everything that was needed to build the temple. And then Solomon built this absolutely glorious place. People would travel from all over just to see the temple of Solomon. Um, And one of its most striking features was that it had these absolutely massive doors. And the doorposts were so big to hold these doors, that each of them had a name. I can't remember the other one's name, but the one was called Boaz. And it just sounds like a really big, butch, manly name of this doorpost having to hold up this door. Why the doorpost had to be so big and strong was because what they did is, across the doorposts and the doors, these massive huge jaws, they beat gold onto the doors. And so those doors were literally gold. Uh, at the temple. And so this is what I mean, Hezekiah used to pay off Sennacherib. Of course, where are we in the story? He has the Assyrian army outside Jerusalem. So Sennacherib took the treasure and then just did what he wanted to do, as all tyrants do. And so for me, the little lesson there is that for a moment, Hezekiah, even though his name kept reminding him that God is his strength, for a moment, his faith faltered. And he did a very typical human thing. He looked to himself. He thought, I've done this before. I've been here before. I know what he wants. And then he looked at the resources that were available to him. And he honestly thought it was going to be enough, but it wasn't. Now, God has given all of us gifts, He's given us talents, He's given us common sense. All of you in this room, there's a wealth of experience and of faith in God, there's a wealth of ability and capability. And yes, it's an honor to God that we increase that. Whatever God has given us, we grow it, we we make it more, and we worship Him with it. That is good, that is fitting. God receives it as worship. But the issue is self-idolatry. When I think that I, I don't need God or when I don't actually ask God, because I know in my life when I, when I discover I'm in self idolatry it's not like I woke up one morning and decided to be arrogant and, and reject God. I'm still praying. I'm still reading my Bible. But so often I realize I just haven't included Him. I just haven't asked Him. I just went in my own strength because I'm so used to doing that. And then it goes bad. And as I said before, when we just rely on ourselves and our own stuff, it makes the mess worse. Just like for Hezekiah, he gave all his treasure away and there was nothing. (laughs) And he has the army now coming to defeat him and his city. But just like Hezekiah, where we falter in our faith, we are also able to come back to God, to remember God, to remember that Yahweh is my strength, and to repent and to make right with God, and then to find God again. Picking up the story in Isaiah 36, verse 13. Then the Rabshakeh stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah, "'Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria,' Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, the Lord will surely deliver us. The city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria. And I've broken it off abruptly there for a reason. We will come back to look at that scripture. So here's Hezekiah realizing that he can't trust in himself. They've accused him of trusting in Egypt, but he has not done that. That was a lie. And this is to Hezekiah's credit. He learned from his mistake. He didn't run around trying to find some other, as, as the Syrians say, broken reed of a rod to lean on that's just gonna make him weaker. But now he's got a choice because who is he gonna trust in? And this is the crux of the matter when it comes to, to the messes of our lives. Because who we choose to trust in relies exclusively on who we are listening to. And this is the power of the spoken word. Romans 10 verse 17 says, So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Proverbs 18 verse 21 says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. Now, in English, we kind of use the words hear and listen as synonyms. We sort of think they mean the same, but they don't. To hear is a physical reality. If you have ears and they're attached to your brain (laughs) correctly, you can hear. Hearing just means that any sound that happens in the room, this morning there was such a beautiful moment because as I got here, this little baby was playing with one of his toys and it was making a nice whirring sound. And I was saying, "That we're hearing that. We're hearing that. But because that's part of life and we love babies and we very quickly tune it out, we stop listening to it. Listening is about an active involvement. We can all hear, but we don't all listen. And listening is a choice. Listening is a conscious effort. And so what we listen to, what we give our ears to, will affect our thoughts, our emotions, which will ultimately affect our actions. Our beliefs are tied up in all of that. Your thoughts and your emotions are your beliefs. And if if we are giving ear to something, it's going to affect us in a certain way. And this is what the Scripture from Romans says. So faith comes from hearing, and hearing from what? The Word of God. So we can hear the Word of God, and it can just go over us and watch over us. We can, you know, that thing that we do then when we haven't really paid attention to our Bible for a while, but praise God, uh, my you version pops up its little notification from the day, and I can read it on the screen, and I think I've read the Bible. <laughs> and then we say, thank you, Lord, and we carry on with our day. It's not a bad thing to do a verse of the day. I have no problem with that. But the issue is, am I hearing or am I listening? And so what this scripture is saying, and it's saying it in a very strange way because Paul is trying to draw our attention to the fact that faith only comes when we hear what? The Word of Christ. What is Jesus saying to us? What is God saying to us? What is the Word saying to us? And I've said it from this pulpit many times, and I'm sure I will say it for a long time because it's something I have to keep dealing with. As Christians, if I went around this room and said, do you believe Jesus is the Son of God? All of you would say yes. If I walked around here and I asked you, do you believe the the Bible is the authoritative voice of God? You would say yes. I could ask you a million questions, but what I'm asking you is if you believe. But the problem isn't our believing. We believe. That's why we're here. Are we receiving it? Do we believe and receive? And go and look in your Bible how often they're linked together. Believe and receive. Because believing, I mean, I think Jesus says to his disciples, even the demons believe. And guess what? They actually tremble. (laughs) Because they're in the spirit realm. They know how terrifying God is. So the issue isn't believing. The issue is receiving. And this is faith. Faith comes when I not just listen, but I receive it. I take it in. I feed on it. I let it change my thoughts and my emotions and my actions that's when it affects life in me. When I read the word that way, that it's actually convicting my heart and changing the way I think about myself, about the world, about other people, about God, that is where it affects life. And that's what that second scripture is talking about. The power of life and death is in the tongue. You know, we get all weird, our feeling a bit sick. Don't speak death over yourself. No, that's utter nonsense. It's about your believing. And out of our belief, our mouth will speak eventually. I'm useless. God doesn't love me. We've all said that in our brains. We don't need our mouths to say it. We're listening to it in our head. It's already happening. And this brings me to the second point, because here is the issue. Faith and fear cannot live together in the same space. In fact, faith and fear are the same thing. Fear is faith in the negative. Fear is faith in what God says. Fear is anything else I'm believing and putting my faith in. And faith is an agreement. The Bible calls it a spirit of fear. Anytime the Bible calls something a spirit of fear, what did it say? It's not just some demon that's coming to you. That's not what it's saying. It's saying you have made an agreement with the suggestion. And now you're living in fear. I know that's true. I struggle with fear. And this is something the Lord used to set me free because so often things happen and I'm like, and then I remember I can choose fear or I can choose to trust God. More often than not these days, I choose God. Every now and again, I choose fear and it's horrible. And so if we start listening to the negative, if we start believing the negative, it affects death in our life. And that's really dramatic. But what I mean by that, it kills our hope, it kills our faith, it kills our expectation. And then our messes get even worse. So um, just just at the beginning of March, somebody on on my Instagram feed posted um, a post by somebody called Dr. Caroline Leaf. Do You all know who Dr. Caroline Leaf is. And she's a Christian neurobiologist, neuroscientist, and her expertise is how the mind and the brain work together. Um, Because your mind is a bit more than your brain. And what she's proven, in a nutshell, is that when we think life, when we feel life, when we bring life to ourselves, our brain reacts a certain way. It it changes. When we choose death, when we fill ourselves with death, when we believe death— affects our brain. It's neuroplasticity, if you want to go and look it up. And she has done so much research and proven that this is what your brain looks like when you choose faith and happiness and joy and whatever, and this is what your brain looks like when you don't. And so her big thing is is that we can rewire our brains. And as a Christian, what she's proving is when the Bible says that we can transform our thinking We will transform our lives. We will transform who we are. And this is what Paul is saying here. This is is where faith comes from. It's what we're listening to. Um, So where I'm going with this is, I think there's a lot of millennials in in this room. There's, There's a few Gen Xs, but I think we've all been exposed to so many millennials. We think a bit like them in any case. And millennials have brought a lot of really good things to the world. And one of the good things that millennials have brought is this concept of narrative. It's something we hear a lot. What's the narrative? Change the narrative. And that's actually a good thing. Because just because we've been thinking the same for 50,000 years doesn't mean we should keep thinking the same. And the whole concept, the good concept of narrative, is that we explore our narratives, that we actually sit and assess and critique our own narratives. That's really good. What's even better for us as Christians is that we actually critique and assess the narratives that are going on in our head. So Dr. Caroline Leaf uh, recently, for about six weeks, went on a theme of narrative. And what she was doing was just challenging that thing. Why do you think that person hates you? What is the story you're telling yourself? What is it based on? Where did it come from? Just because you're thinking it doesn't mean it's true. That was the essence of her six-week posts on Instagram. And as the millennials have taught me to say, her posts were bringing me life. They really were. <laughs> you're, you're left shook, aren't you? Yeah. Um, and between God, between the Holy Spirit and Dr. Caroline Leaf, I started getting really convicted about some of the narratives in my head. And I'll be vulnerable. I do, there, there's this thing where when I'm in the shower or driving or just in some neutral space, I start having fights with like three or four people in my head, vicious fights, because I know they don't like me and they hate me and they're spreading false rumors about me. And in the shower, I think up this narrative runs, and I get so cross with them, and I'm raging at them. <laughs> Listen, don't bring that while I'm preaching, okay? Because now we've got to deal with it afterwards. <laughs> Uh, it's not Lyrica. I'll You'll you take away my story. Um, so <laughs> I'm raging at them in my head. I'm having these fights. And you know how in the shower you always win the fight? You're always so witty. You have the ultimate comeback. You're going to just nail them and bring them down and you're going to win, you know? And just reading the stuff Caroline Leaf was putting up and then the Holy Spirit convicted me. I realized, but... These two or three people, I mean, it's been maybe five years since, like, I've even been really around them. I mean, they're ancillary to my community. What is going on here? Where does this absolute rage come from? And I started assessing the narrative that was going on in my head. And as I was asking the Holy Spirit to show me and and thinking about some of what, what Dr. Caroline was posting, I realized this, I have created these narratives because they're, they're like a a switch for me. They they like switch me out of reality for a moment. And in a way, they protect me. They make me feel a bit better. They bring comfort. Why? Because of that basic human thing to have to be in control. Because when I'm raging like that in the shower or in the car or in that neutral space, it feels like I'm powerful. It feels like I can take control of the situation and I'm going to win. And so I had to own that. That's why that narrative is going on in my head. It's protecting me. It's making me feel comfortable. It's giving me a sense of power and control. But what is it actually based on? And that's when I started realizing these people are not present in my life right now. More than that, I had to actually own that maybe five years ago, they looked at me weird or I picked up a weird vibe from them. And this is where this is coming from. And as I pushed deeper, I realized, okay, with one or two people, there were words said. There were things done. But let's get honest. Some of it was me speaking the words and doing the things. Anybody understand? Lareka is just so good at this. Um, It's just real. But what the beauty of that is then is that then I can forgive. And I can ask for forgiveness. And I can apologize. And so we have to assess the narratives in our own heads and in our own souls. Where are they coming from? If there's something real, well then deal with it. Because we're not supposed to be standing in the shower raging at strangers. (laughs) It doesn't release life. It doesn't bring me life. And so what I've learned to do now, and I'm not I'm getting better at it because I'm practicing it. It's a new skill. Is just to catch that narrative and just stop. And I'll tell you, what I do in that moment is because I struggle with receiving God's love. And so now I realize sometimes when those narratives start, it's when I'm feeling ashamed, when I feel like somebody doesn't like me, when I'm feeling insecure. That's when those narratives come. What fixes all of that? God's love. And so my prayer when that happens is, Lord, help me just to stand in your love in this moment. How can I stand in your love in this place? That person said that to me, it made me feel uncomfortable. How do I just stand in your love? When I need to deal with something, I deal with it. When I need to say something, I say it. But I'm trying to assess the narrative and not just let it run like that. And this is the issue of what's going on here. Can you see that Sennacherib is creating a narrative? And he's trying to hammer the the king of, 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 of Judah, the people of Judah, the king of Jerusalem, the people of Jerusalem with his narrative. And Sennacherib says in Isaiah 36, verse 15, Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, The Lord will surely deliver us. The city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. But after Sennacherib relates his narrative of how powerful and mighty he and his army are, God says something. God says, Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard, with which the young men of the king of Assyria have reviled me. That's Isaiah 37 verse 6. So this story actually goes from 36 to 37 of Isaiah, and I'm jumping around all over the place. But but can you see what the Lord is saying? Don't trust the words. Don't listen to the words. Where do the narratives in our head come from? From words. So there's what man says, and then there's what God says. But let's be honest about the part of what man says. It's not just other people. It's not just the news. I say things to myself. That's what man says. And you know, man makes promises that seem good, but they are just enticements to destruction. So let's go back to that scripture I broke off in the middle, Isaiah 36, verse 16 to 17. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, Make your peace with me and come out to me. Then each one of you will eat of his own vine and each one of his own fig tree and each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern. Up until there, that sounds really good. It doesn't sound bad. Yeah, accepting the king of Assyria. Wow, okay. We can just carry on what we're doing. Here's the crux. Until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards. What is he inviting them to? Slavery. Stay in your place, be happy. But when I come, because I'm your king, and I tell you, you've got to leave. What he's saying is, our land's great. But what he's not telling them is, but you'll be slaves. So this is an interesting thing. Israel never came back. Those 10 tribes of Israel that Assyria took never came back. We don't know what happened to them. There's a remnant that returned, but they disappeared. Judah came back. They do eventually go into exile, unfortunately, because of this pattern of idolatry, but the Lord brings them back. What is fascinating about that is if you read the history of the tribes of of Israel, there are two eternal covenants God makes with two tribes. The tribe of Judah, what is the covenant he makes with the tribe of Judah? A descendant of David will sit on the throne forever. Who is that? Jesus. The other tribe he makes an eternal covenant with is Levi. Because they were the only tribe who didn't bow before the golden calf in, in Exodus. Do you remember when Moses goes up to get the law? And because they were righteous, they went through the camp and killed all the idolaters. That's why they became the priests. There's a whole lot of history in the Bible that's fascinating. But the point I'm going to make tonight, I'll stop there. There's some lots, lots of fascinating stuff around Levi. But Judah was which tribes? David, the da- tribe of David, Judah, and Levi. The other 10 tribes disappear. So why am I telling you all of that? <laughs> oh, because this is what Assyria is promising them. They've watched Israel disappear. Where are they? they Assyria came and took them. And they were gone. But now the king of Assyria is bringing lies again, words again. Come and come to me. It's going to be amazing. Until I take you from your land. And what I I mean, there's so much to love about God. But one of the things I really love about God is he, he is witty. He is sharp. God loves irony. <laughs> He's really good at it. Because this is how God brings the king of Assyria down. He uses his own tactics against him. So this is what he's promising Israel if they'll give up for him. Well, God through the prophet Isaiah in in 2 Kings 19 verse 7 says, behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he shall hear a what? A rumor. And return to his own land and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. So Yari is creating a narrative. Rumors are a narrative. If we give ear to rumors, What are they based on? Are they true? Aren't they? So so God takes the ultimate rumor monger and he drops a spirit in his heart that makes him listen to a rumor. And what happens is the the Rabshakeh, Shakira, goes from the walls of Israel back to the camp to, to tell the king of Syria what's going on. When he gets there, he finds that the king has left. Why has he left? He heard a rumor that some other random king was attacking his hometown. He goes all the way back there. Very soon after that, within the year, his two sons assassinate him while he's worshiping his idols in the temple. This came true. And what's very interesting, that Hebrew word there in, in 2 Kings 19, uh, verse 7, the rumor, um, if you look it up, it's, it's, got, it, 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 it's, it's a rumor, but straight away it tells you that the English word is brew it, brew it. Has, has anybody ever heard that word, brew it? <laughs> yeah, my brew, yeah. Um, Lareko said this morning, it's what you do to coffee. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> But it's this really archaic English word. It it literally means rumor, but if you look at what it actually means, it means a noise, a din, or a clamor. All of those words in English means a big, loud, shouting, irritating, headache-inducing nightmare of a noise. It's so loud, you can't hear any other voice. As we say in English, it's so loud, I couldn't hear myself think. That's the rumor God drops into his heart. But that is also what the world sounds like. How do you know if the world's talking to you? Because it sounds like a bruit, like a noise, like a din, like a clamor. It's like those situations and those circumstances that just keep coming, and you don't know what to do, and you can't think, and it just keeps coming and shouting at you and shouting at you. It's also how the enemy sounds. And so if you're ever confused, if you're hearing God or the enemy, is it a bruit? Is it a din, a noise, a clamor? Because Psalm 29, verse five to six tells us how powerful God's voice is. And it says that the voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. And the cedars of Lebanon were like 15 feet high and thick and wide. If you stood in that cedar forest, you couldn't see the sky. So what does the voice of the Lord do? It comes and shatters the cedars. You can see in the horizon suddenly there's a whole lot of opportunity. Suddenly there's a whole lot of choices. There's a whole lot more clarity. You can see your way ahead. It says that the voice of the Lord um, makes makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. Skipping calves is an image in the Bible. It speaks of joy. It speaks of refreshing When those cedars are shattered and you can see the opportunity and you can see the options that are in front of you, you you find joy. The voice of God brings joy. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. (laughs) He lights your way. You can see where He is. It is so obvious where He is speaking. As as another psalm says, um, His lamp. His word is a lamp unto my feet when he speaks you can see it i also think that fire speaks of warmth and of protection that when we stand in the voice of god when we stand on the word of god we will be safe no matter what else is going on and then the voice of the lord shakes the wilderness the lord shakes the wilderness of kadesh and you know we we feel like we've been walking in a desert for the last while haven't we well the voice of the lord shakes that desert what is he saying he says this is not your destiny This is not your future. This is not your inheritance. This is just a desert. Keep walking. Follow my voice. And so when you feel the shaking in the desert, that's God speaking. You will make it through. And so just like for Hezekiah, there is a very good chance that right now in your life, some loud-mouthed, clamorous, noisy, rumor-monger from the enemy is asking you and I, who do you trust in? And hopefully I've proved to you that that what we are going to answer when it comes to us is exclusively based on who we are listening to. Which voice are we listening to? The Lord says something. Man says something. Who are we going to listen to? And so, as I said, Hezekiah faltered for a moment in his faith, but then he repented and he came back to God. And and when when when, when Isaiah prophesied the destruction of Assyria, um, he goes into the temple and he begins to pray to the Lord. He humbles himself and he cries out for deliverance. And this is what we need to do when we find ourselves in that mess. We need to be assured that we are trusting in God. That is who we are trusting to. And God might bring people, and God might bring processes. That's good. Often God works that way. It's good. But we are trusting in God. And, and, and our promise from God tonight also comes through Isaiah. It's Isaiah 65 verse 4, and it says, Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. This is something incredibly unique about Christianity. Our God actually hears us. Can, do idols have ears? <laughs> Can they hear anything? What's even more amazing is before we speak, he hears us. He hears our hearts. I think, I think God recognizes a faith where he sees it. I was describing it to somebody. You know, I don't know if you've ever been um, in Pumalanga sometime in the forest and you see those little um, fireflies when it's really dark. I mean, they're tiny. They're just there for a second. You're almost like, did I see that? Did I see that? I think God is so sensitive to faith that that's how he is with us. If all we give him is a firefly of faith, he'll take it. He'll grab it. I think sometimes we, we, we're so amazed at the goodness of God in our lives that we don't realize he's taken those tiny little bits of faith, and he's, he's, I, I'm, that's a prayer. I'm going to answer her prayer. We're, we're so worried about does God, he hears you before you even speak, he hears you, while you're still just going, oh, God, help me. He's taking it. That's faith. That's a prayer. Okay, angels, go for it. Do you have enough faith? No, you don't. God doesn't care. He'll take any faith you give him. Do you get what I'm saying? Stop worrying about that. It's not a competition. (laughs) Just trust in him. And then God answered Hezekiah's prayer for deliverance for Jerusalem through Isaiah. Isaiah 37, verse 33. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into the city or shoot an arrow there there, or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mount against it. By the way that he came, by that same way shall he return. And he shall not come into the city, declares the Lord, for I will defend the city to save it from my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. And that's when God sent that spirit, that rumor into his heart, and he left. And the army was left behind. And God prophesied this in Isaiah 37, verse 36. And the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. In a night, Assyria disappeared. Now it's hectic. But that's exactly what those 185,000 were going to do to the people in Jerusalem. So when Hezekiah made a a clear choice, this is a mess. I've tried to fix it myself. It turned into a bigger mess. I'm trusting in God. Sorted. Now it might not be quite that cut and dried (laughs) in our lives. But the bottom line is who you align with, who you choose to trust when a mess comes to your life, is absolutely 100% determined by who you are listening to. And so tonight, Sennacherib might have said it sarcastically to Hezekiah then, but the Holy Spirit is saying it with lots of love to us tonight. Who will you trust in? So why don't you close your eyes? Father God, we just thank you for your goodness, God. We thank you that you are bigger than any mess that comes to our lives. God, I thank you that you don't even care the origin of that mess. If we made the mess, if somebody else made the mess, if it's just because of circumstances, all you want to do is help. And so maybe as you've got your eyes closed, why don't you think about a mess you're facing right now in your life? And, and we pick one. <laughs> And when you've got it, just hold it up to God in your heart. Just tell him, God, this is a mess. Maybe you've relied on yourself. Maybe you've done what Hezekiah did and you've stripped the temple doors bare to sort out this mess, but it hasn't worked. You know, that's okay. God is not angry with you. All he has is love and mercy for you tonight. And all he wants to do is be present with you in that space. Just repent. Just say, Lord, like Hezekiah, I'm sorry I trusted in myself. I'm sorry I tried to figure out how to fix this. And then as you're doing that, maybe you've listened to rumors. Maybe you've listened to lies. Maybe fear has come in your heart. If you look at that mess and there's fear, just, just unagree with fear. Just disagree with fear. Just say, no more fear, Lord. I'm not listening to that. And again, just repent. Repenting just means I'm coming back to God. It's a good thing. He's not going to beat you for it. And as you do that, just recommit to him. God, I'm listening to your voice. I'm listening to the word of God. I'm listening to righteousness. I'm listening to truth. And Lord, as we make that commitment to you tonight, we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would empower that in us, Lord God. That God, when the rumors come, when the fear mongers come, that God, we will not agree. That that the narrative's in our own head, God, we're going to assess them and we're going to let them go when they are not of you, Lord. And, Lord, I just rebuke every strategy of the enemy against every single heart in this room right now. You fall to the ground, and Jesus will deal with you. And I pray, God, that you silence the din, the bruit, the clamor, the noise, Lord God, that we can hear you. That, That we'll let your voice shatter the cedars and shake the desert and flash like fire, Lord God. And we will stand with you in that place, Lord God. Help us in our mess, Lord God. Help us in it, in your mighty name, Lord Jesus, amen.